Hello and welcome to the next episode of How Good It Is, a weekly podcast that takes a look at popular songs of the past and dives into their history, their meaning, or any other things that might be of interest surrounding those songs. My name is Claude Call, and I hope we're all okay with that. Hey, if you want to get in touch with me, probably the best way is to find me on Twitter at HowGoodItIsPod. Or you can leave a comment on the website, HowGoodItIs.com, where you can find some additional trivia, some follow-ups, and other stuff that I found interesting. And don't forget to check out and follow the show's Facebook page, which is where all the cool kids hang out. It's over at Facebook.com slash HowGoodItIsPod. You know, I'm not an especially religious type, but like many people, I enjoy the holiday season, and I often find that many Christmas carols have a way of instilling some level of peace within me. The fact that there are people who have that level of faith, that they can create something that has that ability to uplift, well, that's something that I can appreciate and sometimes envy. And this time around, we're going to uh, talk about not one, but two Christmas carols that have a connection to my hometown of Kings Park, New York. Now, rather than a town specifically, Kings Park is considered a hamlet, which is an unincorporated town that's considered to be part of a larger town. And Kings Park is a hamlet of Smithtown, which is up on the north shore of Long Island. It's comprised of four hamlets, three villages, and a piece of four other hamlets that are associated with other towns. Is that confusing? Oh yeah, sure. (laughs) But as it happens, Smithtown and Kings Park play a part in the stories I'll be talking uh, about tonight. So first, we're going to get into the Wayback Machine, and it's going to take us back to December of 1818 and to a town called Oberndorf, which is in what we would now call Austria. The most common story about the song's origin isn't true, but I'm going to tell it anyway because it's just so Disney. As the legend goes, the church at St. Nicholas in that town had a minor disaster about midway through December that year when they discovered that the bellows that powered the church's organ had been damaged by mice, and the curate, a man named Joseph Moore, determined that it couldn't be repaired in time for Christmas Eve Mass. Now that's the fictional part, and it dates back to an American short story from the 1930s. But here's the real deal. Moore visited a friend of his, a man named Franz Gruber, to exchange gifts shortly before Christmas. During the visit, Moore gave the poem, which he had written about two years earlier, to Gruber. And uh, Gruber was a school headmaster, but he was also an amateur composer, and Moore knew this. So he asked Gruber to set it to music. And it was only a day or two later that Moore played the guitar in the church while the two of them sang their song called Stillnacht. And this was the first public performance of the song that we know in English-speaking countries as Silent Night. As the legend has it, when the organ repairman finally did show up to fix the St. Nicholas organ, he was given a copy of the Silent Night composition and he brought it home. From there, traveling folk singers got a hold of it and began incorporating the carol into their repertoire. And as it made its way into other European nations, Gruber created different orchestral arrangements and didn't take any money for his work. All of the profits earned from that song went to charities for children and the elderly, and Gruber died broke in 1873. 
The song didn't make its way to America until 1839, but the best-known English translation comes from about 20 years later, when Episcopalian priest John Freeman Young, who was serving at the Trinity Church in New York City, worked with three of Moore's original six verses. He also slowed the song down to a lullaby kind of tempo, where originally it was a little bit more mid-tempo in nature. In the years since then, the song has been translated into 140 languages and is one of the most popular carols of all time. Silent night, holy night, all is calm, all is bright. This recording by Bing Crosby was recorded in 1935, and despite its appearance in the middle of that decade, was still his best-selling song of the 1930s. Now, according to Steve Sullivan's Encyclopedia of Great Popular Song Recordings, Crosby, who was a devout Catholic, refused to record the song at first, uh, arguing it would be like cashing in on the church or the Bible. But he met with Father Richard Rannigan, a priest who was trying to raise money for overseas missions, and he decided to donate his royalties to that cause. Unfortunately, Rannigan died in a car accident later that year, so the money instead went to several charities around the world. And here's a fun bit of trivia. According to songfacts.com, there are over 26,000 different versions of Silent Night on Spotify. Which means you could listen to a different rendition of the carol every night for 72 years. Or, alternatively, you could listen to a different rendition for nearly two months straight if you didn't stop to sleep. So what's the connection to Kings Park, I hear you asking? Well, I'll tell you, Silent Night relates not only to my hometown, but specifically to one of the schools I attended as a child. Back in December of 2013, the Ralph J. Osgood Intermediate School, which was an elementary school when I attended, held a holiday concert featuring a chorus of fifth graders. Now, who's responsible for what happened depends on whom you ask. It could have been the choral director, it could have been school officials, but somebody removed the most overtly religious references from the song, and it was sung by the students like that. Now, this bit of audio is coming from, uh, I think, somebody's cell phone, which is why it's going to be a little bit noisy. But you can probably make out what's going on here. So you can hear, none of the lyrics were changed specifically, but the song was cut down and then sort of repasted together into something a little bit more secular. And of course, some parents got upset by this, and it turned into a big thing that got some news coverage. 
Yeah, did you catch it? No virgin mother, no child, no holy infant, no tender and mild, and definitely no Christ the Savior or Jesus Lord at thy birth. None of that. No way. Because the school didn't want to offend non-Christians. The school superintendent and principal at the Osgoode Intermediate School now agree. They're apologizing, say it won't happen again, and admit it was wrongly done so as not to offend non-Christians. Larry is a parent. Lesson learned, you think? There's a lot of lessons to be learned. Some of the lyrics omitted from the song were Holy Infant and Christ the Savior. In Kings Park, Long Island, Mike Zaranax, WCBS 880 News. So go Kingsman, I guess. I hope you don't feel too cheated by that story because this one has a little bit of a stronger connection. Shortly after they got married, Donald Yetter Gardner and his wife Doris moved to the town of Smithtown, New York, where they got work as music teachers. In 1944, Doris had a baby, so Donald took over her second grade class. Now, in the 1940s, the entire school system in Smithtown was a, a single building. In fact, Ralph J. Osgood was the entire school system for Kings Park around the same time, so that wasn't uncommon in that area. Gardner was asked to come up with a song for the holiday concert, which was fast approaching. So one day, he asked the second graders what they wanted for a present, and many of them replied by saying, all I want for Christmas, and then saying what they wanted. Well, there were 22 children in that class, and Gardner noted that at least 16 of them had one or both of their front teeth missing. And because they had those missing front teeth, they were all lifting their anthers. Gardner said in an interview in the late 1990s that he was so charmed by this that he went home and he knocked out a song in about 30 minutes. According to Doris, the song brought down the house when they performed it at the concert. Now, that might have been the end of the story, but as it turns out, the song caught the attention of an employee at the Whitmark Music Company when he heard Gardner sing it at a teacher's conference. The song was first performed for the public at large on Perry Como's radio show in 1948, as performed by his in-house singers, The Satisfiers. At that time, NBC was experimenting with broadcasting radio and TV shows simultaneously, so it's possible, even likely, that this performance also appeared on TV. Unfortunately, I've been unable to find any recording of this performance, so it might be lost. However, the first recorded version of this song is also probably the best known and the most famous. It's by Spike Jones and it's City Slickers, and it was released in October of 1948. Now, if you don't know Spike Jones, he was basically famous for doing novelty-type songs, and his band liked to incorporate um, odd sound effects into the songs. And so it's got definitely a little bit of a comedy element to it, and he sets up the story at the beginning of the recording. So Spike Jones' version of All I Want for Christmas is My Two Front Teeth went to the top of the pop charts that year and the next year, 1949 as well. 
Gardner was later quoted as saying, I was amazed at the way that silly little song was picked up by the whole country. And Donald and Doris Gardner, well, they just raked in the royalties until he died in 2004. it for this edition of how good it is if you want to get in touch with me you can email me at howgoodpodcast at gmail.com or you can follow me on twitter at how good it is pod you can also check out and follow the show's facebook page at facebook.com slash how good it is pod or finally you can check out the show's website how good it where i throw in a few extra bits for you next time around we're going to discover how good it is to deal with fame thanks so much for listening and i will see you then you